So there was a wealthy businessman who was on his deathbed, and the pastor came to visit him. And uh, at that point in time, uh, he began to talk to him about God's healing power and prayed for the man. And when the pastor was done, the businessman looked at him. He said, you know, pastor, if God heals me, I'll give a church, the church a million dollars. And so wouldn't you know it, miraculously, this, this businessman, he gets better in, in life and he goes on. And within a few short weeks, he's actually now out of bed. He's out of the hospital and he, he's gone back to work. And then several months later, the pastor actually bumps into him walking down the street. And he says, you know... You remember when you were in the hospital dying, you promised to give a church a million dollars? Well, I just want to let you know, uh, we haven't received it as of yet. And business businessman paused, he looked at the pastor, he said, you know, did I say that? Man, that just goes to show you how sick I really was. So welcome to Seoul. We have two joy baskets. Woohoo! I just want to give you an update again financially. Again, as I talked to, at the, a couple of months back, we were 60,000 behind our year to date. Uh, on our end, we've done a whole lot of uh, cutting back uh, to the extremes. And uh, last month, we came in 5,000 in the black. This, uh, uh, that was, sorry, that was January, February, March, April. And in May, we came in almost 4,000 in the black. So uh, we still have a way to go to go year to date. But I just want to keep you informed as to where we're going. When we get our financial statements back, we'll have an in-house meeting. Uh, also, I just need to add to uh, that uh, Tamara Craker, who's been on our steering committee for four years, uh, who sits in the, the seat 30 and under. Her, terms are, her term is up and has to step down. And so we now open up another seat on our uh, steering committee, our leadership. And if you know of anybody who meets the qualifications, which is basically a believer, 30 years of age or younger, involved in the life of the church, uh, and you want to nominate them, just send us a nomination with their name and we'll contact, that from, uh, contact them from there. And uh, we are in the process of filling that seat for July 1st. So, let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for that uh, we can come together and, and, and worship uh, in freedom. I thank you for the wonderful weather that we're having. I thank you for this past weekend and what you're doing in the lives of of women through Gather Women. And I just thank you for our nation and uh, my heart grieves for what's going on in England. Uh, right now, my heart grieves for what's going on in the Middle East and other areas of our world that are caught in chaos and torment uh, throughout Asia. And uh, Lord, we just ask that your hand would be upon us. We pray for our believers, our missionaries all over the world because we just take our freedoms and our safety for granted. So uh, help those who are uh, in mourning today. Help those who are being persecuted. Help those who are in distress. And on this Pentecost Sunday, where your spirit came down to empower the world around us, fall again. And my prayer is that you would touch us today as we listen to your word, and that everything thought and everything spoken and everything felt will be blessed by you. So we're in Matthew chapter 5, and everything now seems a little bit anticlimactic. Because uh, we just talked about murder, we talked about adultery, we talked about eye-plucking, you know, chopping off our hands. Uh, but the issue that Jesus is addressing here goes to the very core, which is interesting, of a person's character. It, it, to the heart of what it means to live as a child of God. 
And I find it interesting in that this next portion comes right on the heels of, of Jesus talking about adultery and divorce. And many people actually address this section that we're about to jump into as separate. Uh, but I see it as going hand in hand with marriage. Jesus says, again, you've heard it said that uh, it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear at an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you can't even make one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. It's very interesting. What is he talking about? And so Matthew 5 contains comparisons of external performances and also internal obedience. And uh, that internal obedience which God desires. And Jesus talks about anger. He talks about sexual desire. He talks about divorce. He talks about lying. He talks about revenge. He talks about hatred. And in each of these cases, he calls us, that's me, that's you as believers. Okay. Where did that come from? <laughs> Is that my happy dance? Is that what you want? Okay. He calls us as believers to commit ourselves not to just obeying the external requirements of the laws, but also to allow the kingdom, his kingdom, to govern our thoughts, our motives, and our attitudes, to basically to take it further, to go the extra mile, so to speak. And so first Jesus... Uh, taught it's not the external behavior of murder that's wrong it's also wrong to maintain unresolved anger towards another person which makes us go mm, right next we saw that Jesus taught that it's not only against the law to cheat on your spouse but it's also against the law to just entertain the desire of having an affair with somebody else mm. all of a sudden we're all feeling guilty in this room and it's also against the law just to, uh, sorry, then we talked about divorce. And although the Bible does allow a divorce, we saw that, God's intention is that we would remain faithful to our spouses even when things get difficult. We call that endurance. And now Jesus in, in 533, he teaches us about truth. And he's, just as he did with the previous subjects, he begins with what his followers, what the people, his listeners already knew from the Old Testament regarding oaths and vows. Now, a vow is a very specific kind of oath in which a person makes, and, and, and the person who's making the vow solemnly swears to pay something to God, basically in turn for God's favor or blessing in a certain matter. So when you look into the Old Testament, into the law of Moses, there's a very strong connection between vows and what they call votive offerings. And a votive offering in the Old Testament was a special offering. Um, uh, it was a form of peace offering, and it was made in the fulfillment of a vow. So you'd make a vow to God, you know, God, if you do this, this will happen. And when God's blessing shows upon you and you've committed to it and the answer is there, well, then you would go and you would acknowledge it and you would be a fulfillment of, of your promise, your, whatever you did before the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, vowed that if God would give her her son, and you've got to remember her circumstance, she was barren. So she prays and she says, God, if you give her me a son, I will devote him to you. 
as a Nazarite. I'll give him back to you. And so God gave her a son, and she fulfilled her vow. She brought Samuel to the temple, and she gave him over to Eli. Can you imagine a woman who is barren, gets, finally gets her boy, and then gives him over as an infant to Eli. And uh, he raises that, here the high priest then begins to raise Samuel. The law talks about the significance also of making an oath. Uh, Numbers 30 says, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. This seems simple. But why is Jesus addressing it? And so the Old Testament teaches that a person following God should be an honest person should fulfill their promises. You'll be able to rely on him doing what he said you know, he would do. The important thing from the perspective of the Old Testament is that you know, if you're going to swear to do something, um, uh, it better be true, so to speak. And if you swear that you're going to do something, then you better be sure that you're going to make it and make it happen. So it says, don't swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of uh, your God. I am the Lord. And I believe that um, one of the relationships in which we do the worst with this is probably the one that we have the greatest impact as well. And that's in our relationship with our spouses. See, the marriage covenant is this exceedingly sacred manner, and I don't think we grasp that in our culture. We just see it as a piece of paper. Oh, marriage is just a piece of paper. No, it's a covenant between you, somebody else, and God. And this is the whole teaching of the vow and the oath. This is where it comes in. This is why I see, I personally see, this overlapping with what Jesus is teaching. It's, you know, the marriage covenant is, is incredibly important. It's an, an incredibly sacred matter. Uh, it's one of the few formal covenants that we practice in our culture, when you think about it. God singles it out over and over again as we go through the scriptures as a covenant like unlike any other covenant. And he is the one who declares it to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. We read that in Ephesians. He is the one who declares it to be a sacred bonding of two into one flesh. We read that in Genesis. He is the one who says that what God has pulled joined together, let no man tear asunder, let no man rip it apart. And if godliness compels us to honor our statements even when they seem trivial... What does godliness compel us to do when we have solemnly vowed before God and God's people to remain faithful to our spouses until death? Tell me you see the importance of a wedding vow. Please. Or do I miss it completely? So does God's character compel us to do what we have sworn even if it's to our own hurt? And the answer is yes. It's a tough standard. 
Yes, because it's what God has called us to do. And it's not so tough if we lay hold of the promises that he's already blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That the same power that has raised Christ from the dead dwells within us in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. We don't do it on our own. And this is the importance of the marriage vow. An oath was a solemn promise that was made to indicate that somebody was telling the truth. Uh, They used to resolve disputes and seal agreements or covenants or simply affirm the, the truthfulness of a very important declaration. When you read the Old Testament, we see that it's filled with examples, um, almost over 200 times where an oath is made. And this practice doesn't begin with the law. It actually precedes the law and existed in Abraham's time, uh, about 500 years before Moses. And so, you know, oaths are exchanged between Abraham and Abimelech in Genesis 21, and it served to end a dispute They established a covenant, a promise with one another. Later, Isaac and Abimelech referred to that same essential covenant. uh, And they exchanged oath again in Genesis 26. There are many, many other examples of oaths in the Old, uh, Old Testament. And so often when we read the scriptures, we see that God is called upon uh, to serve as a witness to oaths between parties. Much like we call upon God to serve as a witness when we get married. And so we see that as well. And so he told the people that if you're going to use me as a reference, and this is, I love this, God says, if you're going to use me as a reference, if you're calling upon my name, upon your transactions, um, uh, you better be serious about telling the truth. In fact, this is what the third uh, of the Ten Commandments is talking about in Exodus 20. You do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. You want to translate that, that uh, NIV. Misuse literally means to lift up without any purpose. Now, it's not just about using the Lord's name as a curse word, this, this commandment. It's, it's, it's more than that. It's deeper than that. God, God said that if you use his name If you're operating upon God's name, there better be some meaning behind it. He doesn't want to be a party, he doesn't want to be a party to our lies and deception. So when it comes right down to it, when Jesus is talking about oaths and vows, and when the Old Testament is talking about oaths and vows, it's all about the integrity of the individual. But the intention of the Old Testament was not that words under oath are only words that are binding. The intention was that it was wrong to lie under oath, just as it is wrong to lie at any time. So that's the functions of an oath. They are intended to demonstrate honesty. I'm a man of my word. I'll make an oath. I'll make a vow. I'm a man of my word. That's basically what it was saying. So not everybody tells the truth. Amen? And we got a whole room upstairs, right? Because of that, you know, sometimes we don't believe people when they open their mouths. Anybody know of anybody of which I speak? Don't point. 
And if you think about it, if not telling the truth is one of the first skills that we learn all by ourselves, usually without the assistance of a parent or a teacher. We don't even need to have it modeled by somebody else because it's just in us. We don't want to tell the truth. Adam and Eve displayed that for us. We just have this natural talent for pushing it somewhere else. And that blossoms automatically when we're really young. Just after we learn to talk, we learn to lie. Watch this video. Okay, we're now we're going to talk about this, you two. Something happened here on the wall. Who did that? Jackson, did you do that? Um, no, he did that. No, I did not. I really didn't. Okay, well, when I walked in the room, you looked like you were hiding something. No, a ghost definitely did not do that. Well, well, I was trying to hide it from you because I didn't want Jackson to get in trouble. Are you sure about this? Because mm-hmm. I don't know if I believe you because you have not told the truth in the past. Jackson, did you do that on the wall? No, I did not. I really didn't. Did you see him do that? No. Why does it look like you're not telling the truth? I'll take that. Thank you. No, I need it still. What do you think happened here? How do you think he did that, Reagan? I don't know. You don't know? I did not see. Get that away from your face for a second. Get that away from your face. How do you think that this happened? Jackson, how do you think this happened? You did it? Yeah. You did do it. Is that good or bad? Good. Not good. (laughs) I don't know who to believe. We're going to have to talk to Daddy about this. He did? I deny. Jackson said yes. He did it. He doesn't know what he's saying right now, I don't think. I know you see that mocker face. What? <laughs> what did you say? My mocker. <laughs> what about the marker? Jackson, you really did this. Jackson does not tell him the truth. I don't know, Reagan. I really don't know if I believe this right now. I do that. Reagan, when did you find that? And why did you have that pen thing in your hand when I saw you? You were just holding it? Jackson just put it on the ground, and then I sort of found it. I'm really having a hard time believing you. I need that back. You wanna, do you want to try again? Who did this? I did. 
vampire teeth coming out. You have vampire teeth coming out? Yeah. Let's see. Oh, you too. Why do you seem sad right now, Reagan? Because Jackson scratched me far in my nose. Jackson, did you say you were sorry? Sorry. Sorry for what? Sorry, Rig. Sorry, Rig. <laughs> hey, oh, oh, Jackson, we do not do that. No spitting. No thank you. Do you need a time out in your room? No. You need to go to your room. That was bad. Do you see all this stuff? This is kind of blood. Ugh. Oh, let's take a look. I have to say that this mom actually does a whole lot of YouTube shaming of her children because they lie like crazy. But we see how kids just don't tell the truth. A busload of politicians were heading to a convention, um, but because of highway construction, they had to take a detour down a rural road, and the driver was having problems because it was windy, and it was a country lane. He lost control of the bus, and it ran off the road. It crashed into a tree in an old farmer's field. I believe the name was Bergman. And the uh, old farmer was driving you know, to town when he noticed that there was a gaping hole in his fence, and he decided to investigate what happened. And when he went back, he got it to his truck. He got a shovel and saw all these politicians out, laid out all over the place to start to bury them where they lay. And since the politicians never arrived at their location, the RCMP were dispatched to locate them. And they backtracked the route of the politicians, followed the country roads, saw the wrecked bus in the field, look up, and saw that this old farmer owned the property. And RCMP went in, they found Mr. Bergman and said, Will, where did all the politicians go? He informed the RCMP that, Officer, I buried them where they lie. And the cop asked, were they all dead? And Will responded, well, some of them kept saying they weren't, but you know how politicians lie. <laughs> it just stays with us, doesn't it? From the time we're kids to the time that we're older. And uh, throughout the scripture we find, yet when we read it, we find the words of honesty and purity and truth and upright and, you know, it's complete, all translated from the same words, really, that have the root word in the word integrity and that they're all synonymous. And if we're going to live lives with integrity as believers, we must know what integrity looks like and that comes in we are obligated to start spending time in the scriptures and spending time with God because our trustworthiness depends upon our integrity. James chapter 5, above all brothers, don't swear, not by heaven or earth or anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. James is reiterating what his brother taught earlier. First Peter, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. 
Proverbs says, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. Proverbs again, a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who pours out lies will not go free. Psalms, you destroy those who tell lies. Wow, revelations, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the adulterers, and who else? All the liars. Their place will be in the fiery... Like, does this not put fear in us? Colossians, don't lie to each other. Since, and he's talking to the church. Since you've taken off your old self with its practices, put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Ephesians, each one of you must put off, again, to the church, put off falsehood. Speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. And unfortunately, whenever there's room for a loophole, people will find it. And by the time we get to Jesus' day, people have actually found loopholes and in, in, in how they use oaths in order to lie. You know, oaths were com- corrupted at this point in time when Jesus is talking to allow for deception. And the Pharisees interpreted it to mean that, you know, you only, only when you did an oath, you know, maybe you had to tell the truth, but even then you had a, it was a certain kind of oath and they might have their fingers crossed. You know, got my fingers crossed when I said it. That's not what God meant. Ecclesiastes says that when you make a vow to God, don't be late in paying for it. He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. God doesn't take our promises lightly. And he still doesn't. And the error of the Pharisees that Jesus is addressing here is not misstating the law, it's mishandling the law. They miss the point. They, we live in a culture in which truth is often the first casualty of inter, uh, interactions between people. And we have an incredibly elaborate system now of lawyers and contracts and notaries and binding signatures to ensure that we do what we say that we will do. And at least when it's perceived to be important enough, and, and none of it makes uh, people any more truthful because even though we sign contracts, we still try to get around it. And everybody said, yeah, ouch. As with Jesus' previous commands in the Sermon of the Mount, dealing with murder, adultery, divorce, the law of Moses has already spoken to this issue, but the scribes and the Pharisees perverted the teaching again, and they chronically missed the spirit of the law. And throughout this sermon that Jesus is doing, he begins to zero in on the spirit of the law in keeping with its purpose and the reflection of God's holy character, exposing the religious around to the fakes that they really are. Now it's interesting because some Christians have read this passage of scripture, Matthew 5, 33, 37, and they simply say this, and, and, and they do, there's many, that we, to teach that we must not under any circumstance utter an oath or a vow. And so some Christians will refuse to take an oath or a vow in a court of law. Some go so far as in a marriage ceremony or any other situation. I'll just say this, that's a total misunderstanding of the scripture. The heart of the matter of our passage has nothing to do with the the formality of an oath or a vow. The heart of the matter is the heart. It is our yes must be our yes, and our no must be our no. 
And God says to his people in every age, he says, you be holy because I am holy. Jesus makes that same appeal in the Sermon on the Mount later on here. In 48, he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So let us be, let us be as Christians, a soul sanctuary. Let's worry about our own backyard because we need to be truthful people. Why? Because we are the Father's children, and that's reason enough. Jesus says, you've heard it, the law say that the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, don't resist an evil person. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. And if you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask. Don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You know, one night our family was sitting at dinner and one of my son's asked a very thought-provoking question. He said, Dad, if my brother, insert J1, J2, J3, J4 there, hits me, is it okay if I hit him back? And actually, those are still questions I get asked to this very day. See, our world's ethic is, is that we strike back, that you know, we need to get even. We have to do unto others as they do unto us, right? And so Jesus' teaching here is confronting the popular misuse and abuse of the Old Testament law known as the law of retaliation, or in Latin, lex talonolis. And the law of the life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, etc. So imagine yourself for a moment in an ancient situation where you, your family, you live in a place, and you gotta remember this, it's true, there's, there's no police force, right? There's no course, there's no local um, uh, state, there's no federal government, you're just one of these people, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. There's no king or authority ruling over you or the people around you. Then one day you're going about your business, and sure enough, you're shocked that the news comes from one of your neighbors had intentionally and maliciously hit your little daughter so hard it knocked out and broke four of her permanent teeth. What would you do? Well, because there's no authority to report this injustice to. Well, so what do you want to do? You want to seek justice. So what if the situation was worse? What if your child then was intentionally killed? You would probably want to take the matter into your own hands, and you would want to seek retribution, right? Maybe even to the point of blood revenge, and perhaps you would try to impose the same type of injury on the attacker that he imposed on your family. And maybe you would even want to punish him, where? To a greater degree than the offense that he has already committed against you. But after you have taken revenge, after that, maybe the attacker's family may feel that they have been now mistreated, that you went too far, and maybe they want to respond, and now you set up this cycle of retaliation and revenge between you and them, and then you got the Hatfield and McCoys all over again. And so the institution of the Lex Talonalis into the Mosaic Law for the, the nation of Israel and the ruling authorities it was, in this writer's view, a real advancement for the cause of justice. So it was designed to prevent personal actions of retaliation and revenge. That's why they did it. The injured person or the relative of the injured person could go to the governing judicial authority in Israel and ask now to seek justice. But what should the appropriate punishment be in the case of a murder or maybe if somebody was maimed? 
You know, where, does, where is the, the law? How does it come to play for a life for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, uh, life for a life, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? And so basically the establishment of this was the punishment must fit the crime and no more the crime but also no less. And so it was supposed to be strict and it was supposed to be fair, but it was also designed to prevent and to deter, deter sorry, um, much crimes. And uh, there was, uh, it was there to remove the punitive actions for crimes from the hands of the victim and his family and put them into the hands of the governing judicial system. So it's designed as a principle of proportional justice. We needed justice. We needed systems. And it was designed to appropriately now punish the offender. So what if you get slapped? Now, I don't mean to slight anybody who's left-handed, because one of my boys is a lefty. But Jesus' example is interesting, because if we want to be literalist, Jesus is actually uh, um, uh, speaking specifically to a right-handed slapper. Now, if you're right-handed and you slap somebody on the cheek, it's one thing. But if, I, if I'm a right-handed slapper and I slap somebody on the right cheek, what have I done? I've given them a backhand. So do you see what's being said here? If you're right-handed and you slap somebody on the right cheek, what have you done? You've given them a backhand. You have given them this slap that the Jews considered twice as insulting as a slap with an open palm. Isn't that interesting? Right? So now suppose this happens to you, and one day you're going about your business. Somebody that you know, they walk up to you, and they unjustly insult you by giving you a backhanded slap across the face. I go through that every time I go to Costco. I have this urge just to backhand people. Maybe you feel the same thing as I do. So it's interesting because the first instinct may be when we get slapped is to turn around and slap back, right? Uh, but in this, because of the jargon, this telling jargon of slap for slap, the Jewish rabbis had a law in the Mishnah that said, well, you can actually, if you get slapped, you can seek restitution in court. And for a front hand slap, it's, it's a 200, um, we'll say shekels, the, the term, the monetary unit is those. But for a front hand slap, it's 200. But if you get a backhand slap from somebody and you take them to court, you can get 400. So you, you see that the Jews begin, the religious system is beginning to think on how to do this. And so you can take a person to court just for insulting you. But remember that Jesus is contrasting his system of righteousness with that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so not only does Jesus say, don't you dare slide back and, and take the person to court just, or just walk away. He says, stand there. And he doesn't say, hey, raise your voice. You know, why did you do that? Jesus teaches none of those things. But he, he says to actively, voluntarily turn the other cheek, exposing it for a further strike. Why? And then he says, if anybody wants to sue you, take your tunic. You know, or they want to sue you and take your tunic. Well, why would he say that? Why would anybody want to sue somebody for a piece of clothing? Well, it's hard to understand this one without some Old Testament background. Because again, under the Old Testament borrowing laws, a poor person who borrowed money could provide a garment, a pledge 
right, as a collateral to ensure that he would pay his loan back. Now, normal practice at the time would be that people would wear a lighter tunic and also a heavier outer garment or a cloak to be used in colder conditions. And so why would a person give such a piece of clothing for collateral? Well, if he was really poor, that might be all they had, the shirt on their back. And when it gets awfully cold at night, sometimes even in the desert, depending on time of the year, the Old Testament had a provision that required that that person must now then return the garment to the poor person every night for warmth. So yeah, he gives it to you for collateral, but at night when you go back to bed, he'll give it back to you so you are at least warm. So let's say that person, poor person takes out a 30-day loan. No interest would be charged, and the, the pledge would be the garment, and you'd have to exchange hands between the borrower and the lender every day, but twice a day, for 30 days. And the lender wasn't allowed to go to the borrower's house and, and had, to return the garment, had to return the garment every night. And the borrower was to turn the garment back to the lender each morning until the loan was paid back. So that was the point of collateral. But what if one of the parties violated the provision? What if the, leader, the lender you know, came, stood outside his house, asked for the garment, and the borrower refused? What if the poor person felt rightly that the loan was already paid off and the, the exchange of the garment was no longer required? Well, this is, you know, where a lawsuit or a court injunction might come into play. And the Pharisees now had all these detailed rules using the court system as a tool for dealing with the problems. Jesus, however, comes in, has a bold and very radical approach. If anybody wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let them have your cloak also. He doesn't say, sue them back. He doesn't say, use the courts to prove you're correct. He doesn't even say, just go ahead, rightly or wrongly, and give him the garment. After all, Deuteronomy said, if one garment was returned according to the law, you know, that was enough. But Jesus says, we'll give him both garments. Again, he takes it further. Also in Roman law, it's interesting that the law required an individual from a conquered country to carry a load or a pack up to one mile on foot if asked by a Roman. It was compulsory service. It wasn't popular. It was absolutely hated and despised by the Jews. Why? Because they were occupied by the Romans. It was done begrudgingly. They hated it. The scribes, the Pharisees particularly despised these laws being used by these ruling powers by the Romans. There is a New Testament example of this, and we miss it completely in Matthew 27, about carrying a load in which Simon of Cyrene was forced to do. The soldiers tell Simon to carry Jesus' cross. That's what it's talking about here. And so the Jews despise the Roman occupation. In, in AD 66-67, they started this futile revolt, only to be eventually crushed and killed. The temple then is destroyed. And many of them wanted just simply a Messiah. They wanted Judas Maccabeus, who would overthrow the Roman occupation, set up Israel as this independent nation once again, and restore their nationalistic hopes. But... That's where they wanted to be. So this teaching that Jesus was doing on compulsory service was more jarring and astonishing to his audience. What do you mean go the extra mile? Now suppose a Roman soldier comes to you and says, I want you to carry my pack for a mile. What do you do? Well, there's three options, you know. I can actively retaliate. Physical retaliation probably meant ah, I was going to get stabbed. I can resist, you know, verbally deny the request and run like crazy. Or I can comply with the request, meet the legal requirement, and go with them, you know, the mile, no more, no less. Jesus says, go with them too. 
go the extra mile. And then there's something about the person asking you for money. And the Old Testament text of Deuteronomy provides a good backdrop on Jesus' teaching. The Old Testament had a strong ethic of promoting loans and gifts to those in need. And the scribes and the Pharisees also did it. But much of it was enveloped in a system of regulation and rules. It was uh, predicted upon ensuring repayment. But going on Jesus' teaching on the subject, we go to the book of Luke. Luke gives us a little bit more information. And he says, if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. The key phrase there is hoping for nothing in return. In other words, make the loan to the person in need, but expect nothing in return. If he can't or doesn't repay, well, then you just consider it a gift. You don't get that feeling that Jesus would you know, never be hired by a mortgage company after you know, he taught this thing here. Somebody might say, well, nobody's ever given me a backhanded slap. You know, nobody's ever sued me for my clothes. Nobody's ever forced me to carry a pack for a mile or asked me for a loan you know, as a really needy person. But the point of this, the point that Jesus is making to all of us, that these are just examples of offending situations, and you have to plug into whatever particular situation that's offending you and now apply the principle of not only foregoing any retaliation, but taking a stunning action that gives your offender a blessing. And these are some of the hard sayings of Jesus. They're hard to do. But for as the disciples of Christ, they're not out of the realm of the possible. And a difficult part of applying Jesus' teachings for me, and probably for all of us, is to determine the scope of the applicability here. And I suspect it applies to a lot more situations in our lives as Christians than we want it to or which we are actually really comfortable with. Peter builds off of Jesus' teaching. He applies it to the relationship between brothers and sisters within the church. Finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be cur- uh, courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit what? A blessing. Our job is, regardless of how we are treated and, and, and don't get hung up on the examples that Jesus has given us, is that we are to go that extra mile, that we are to be blessing because you look at what Jesus starts going into. And again, I think this is all paralleled with marriages and divorce and adultery when you're hurt, when you're wounded and all this stuff, this blessing that comes through because Jesus now goes on and he finishes the section by saying, you've heard it, the law says, that love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's that blessing. And in that way, you'll be acting as what? True children of the Father in heaven. And he gives you his, and for he gives, and this is critical, his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends his rain out on the just and unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is that for you? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anybody else? Even pagans do that. You are to be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, go back to the Old Testament. The phrase is taken from a quote in, in Leviticus 19, but there's, there's nothing in the law that told the Jews to hate their enemies. 
Now that's just something that came naturally. That's actually something that comes naturally to all of us. You know, to those close to us, those, you know, those that are like us, those, uh, maybe they're the ones that we love, but the opposition, you know, is one thing. We love people easy, but when we get opposition, that's a, different, that's a whole different animal. And our natural response as human beings is when people rub us the wrong way, when it starts getting ugly. And it starts small, and it can turn into hate. It can turn into the enemy. Now, the en- word enemy is interesting because you and I have a warring concept in our culture, but yet the word enemy means an unfriendly opponent. Scrabble. But an enemy could be somebody who hates us, who seeks to harm us, who seeks to cause us trouble. An enemy could be somebody who has wronged us. An enemy can be just somebody on the opposing side, an unfriendly in the sense that they are hostile to the values or beliefs maybe that we find important. There are a lot of areas in our lives every day where we can find enemies, and if we can't find them, we can always make them. It's very easy to do. I can, I can take you out on a day, and I can, we can come with me to Costco, and we'll do some backhanding, and we'll make some enemies. And, and, and the, perhaps the word seems strong, but we've all discovered in our own lives there are personal enemies, people who have wronged us, people who have hurt us. And the natural thing for us to do when that happens to us is to hate them back. Hate them for what they do or what they believe or what they value or where they came from or why they threaten to take maybe away from us. And by human standards... There are some people who are just not worthy of our love, right? They don't deserve it. They just don't get it. And we look at life as either a love or hate relationship, you know, because that's the way it works. But Jesus has a different approach. Instead of a love or hate relationship, he demands a love for hate relationship. It's amazing what a couple of letters will do. We are to love our enemies, whoever they are. And the correct way to respond to your opponent is not to hate them, but to love them. And that is so not natural. It's actually supernatural. And it's a response that's so foreign to us that we're only going to be able to do this under the strength of God and asking God through the power of his Holy Spirit to help us do that. And it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. We're to pray for those who are even persecuting us. And it's a prayer that actually often changes our heart and it moves us from a a natural response to a supernatural response. And I don't have what it takes to love my enemies, but I'll tell you, God does. And God's standard is different from our own human standards. And instead of asking, you know, who's not worthy of your love, God asks, who do you love who's not worthy? And, you know, an enemy doesn't deserve our love, right? But God says, love them anyway. It's a love for hate relationship. And what does it mean, then, to love our enemy? You know, these days, love often gets defined just as an emotion. It's a feeling. But love in the Bible goes well beyond on how you feel about something. It's a decision. It's sometimes a decision to do something opposite of what you feel like doing. With four boys, you know, when a child comes into your room at three o'clock in the morning and says, you know what, I threw up, you know, what do you do? You get out of bed, you comfort them, right? You clean them up, you change their sheets, you soothe them back to sleep. Is that what you feel like doing? 
No, you want to hit your spouse and say, you do it. But you get up and you do it because you love your kids. And when we understand that, because it's natural to love our own child, it's not natural to love our enemy. But love is the same thing. It means having enough concern for another's well-being that you overcome your personal desires in order to meet their needs and to help them feel loved. We look at 1 Corinthians. You know, we hear this at weddings. Think of somebody who's your enemy now. Forget about the wedding. Think about somebody who's your enemy. Think of someone whose values are are totally opposite of yours. Think about somebody who's done you wrong right now. And think about that person and listen how Jesus would have you treat them. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. Love never fails. That gives that passage of scripture a whole new meaning. Because I'm going through there, it's not easily angered. No, that's where I'm weak, I'm sorry. It keeps no record of wrongs. No, no, it does. No, I'm positive it does. So why should we learn to love our enemies? Because Jesus tells us that we need to love our enemies. Why? As believers, so that we will be sons of our Father. Sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. There's only one reason why we love our enemies. Because that's what your dad would have you to do. When we love our enemies, we demonstrate the fact that we, love, we are God's children and we prove our relationship with, a, with him. And he closes off with two examples. He, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. So it doesn't matter that they are good men or evil people. God gives them his sunshine. Even if they don't acknowledge that it belongs to him, he gives them light. He gives them warmth. He, he makes their food grow and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. This is not a negative connotation at all. Rain, as our farmers know it, is beautiful. It's a positive gift. We need it to grow. God waters the whole earth. This is a blessing. Sun and water being blessed upon the earth. He doesn't just supply food for the righteous, but he also does it for the unrighteous. So God gives without distinction. He loves people indiscriminately. God's love is one-sided. It's non-reciprocal. You don't have to do anything to earn God's love, to deserve God's love. You just get it. And that's his grace. And Jesus tells us then, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this verse in itself has given some people some headaches, especially you OCD people. Because it's sounding like Jesus is setting a standard that we just can't attain, but it's It's worth noting that this verse is related to the verses that we've just been reading. The word perfect here means complete and thorough. 
Jesus is talking about the way that we ought to love. Loving only our friends and our family is an incomplete love that any human being can do. But loving your enemy, loving those that hate you, those that hate God, that kind of love is mature. That kind of love is fully developed. It's that kind of love that God has, right? And so go the whole way in loving just as God loves. Our love should be like God's love. We should follow our Father's example. So maybe today you're just sort of exploring who this whole Jesus thing is, and maybe you're fascinated by his teachings. Maybe you wondered what this religious expectations are. I hope today maybe that you've begun hearing Jesus calling, not for religion, but for a response. And I hope for every one of us sitting here today, that as we meditate on the scripture, as we go through the scripture, like, I've I got to be honest with you. This has been probably, out of all the series we've ever done, this is the one that speaks to me the most, the deepest, and the one that I get actually bogged down in details on because it's so rich in teaching. It's also holding up a mirror to my own life. And, I, you know, again, going through 1 Corinthians 13 and looking at <laughs> what love is and how do I apply it to those that I don't love. That's tough. But I think God is speaking to us. And I want to encourage all of you to explore your relationship with Christ. Ask God to speak to you. Maybe you're new and you just don't really know what this is all about. Ask God to reveal himself to you, to make Jesus known to you. Maybe there's a tugging in your heart today and he's already calling your name to follow him. We're called to repent. We all are. Some here have already answered that call, but maybe that's you today. Maybe you need to turn around and change your life and make Jesus Lord of your life. And just surrender. Maybe your mouth is this one of constant lies. Maybe your heart is filled with hate and destruction. Maybe your, your, your focus is all about yourself and you couldn't care less about the people around you. Maybe God is just trying to turn you from the inside out. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning? If you haven't, invited Jesus into your heart to be Lord of your life. Just in the quietness of your heart, pray along with me. Lord, I recognize you as my Savior. I'm sorry for the things in my life that have displeased you. And thank you for coming to earth to die in my place. Thank you for taking away my sin. And I believe in you, and I receive you into my life this morning. Help me to rely on you in the days to come. Help me to follow you so I can grow to become like you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that for the first time, tell us before you leave. Tell somebody. If you came with somebody, just tell them. Over here on my right, we'll have a cross and... Tell one of us if you want. You can, we can meet you up for coffee. Our, one of our staff will be there. Um, if you even want more, maybe you have more questions, we're here for you today. Or you can take a little uh, welcome card, fill it out, take it to the welcome desk, drop it off. We'll contact you this week. We'll do coffee. We want to help people in their spiritual journey. That's what we want to do. For the rest of you, stand with me, please. Thank you.
Can you do something really stupid with me today? Can we say it together? May my yes be yes and my no be no. Can we? I, I, seriously? Like audibly as, as believers? It's totally stupid, is it not? But may my yes be yes and my no be no. One more time. I want that to be ringing through your head all week long. May my yes be yes and my no be no. Because Heavenly Father, you're always calling us to respond to your voice. And what is it that you're actually saying to us individually? What is it that you're saying to us as a church? What is out of order in our lives today? And what do we need to repent of? And may we commit ourselves to taking your words to heart. And we thank you and we ask you to continue to protect us from the evil one. And Father God, we're aware that there is always sin and error. So I pray for a purifying and a cleansing in our midst. And we pray that your spirit will open our ears to hear your voice and your spirit would motivate our heart to speak your words of honesty and integrity and that our yes will be yes and our no will be no. So Jesus, help us. Help us to take your words seriously. Help us to feel empowered in the midst of darkness and suffering and that we can actually respond well. Help us not only to impact our environment. Oh, God, help us to love our enemies. You put people in our path that need your help. You put us in places of opportunities. And with Noah, you're always looking uh, to us to be involved in the process of healing and helping. May we be mindful of that every day. We thank you and we praise you. Amen. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving blessing did likewise. You do not have to set up or put up any chairs. Just leave everything as it is. So Soul Sanctuary, may God send you out of this place of worship and this time of celebration to live lives of hope, to be nurturers of a vision of wholeness, to serve as healers in this wounded world. And may he grant you wisdom. May he grant you courage. May he grant you peace. And what? May your... Yes, be yes, and your no, be no. Amen. Be people of integrity. See you next week.